Before we start the podcast, we'd like to warn our listeners that this episode contains descriptions of sexual abuse. Due to the nature of the topic, the entire series may contain graphic descriptions not suitable for some listeners. It's a perfect sunny afternoon in California in the 1970s. A middle-aged man poses for a picture next to a teenage boy who is already slightly taller than he is. They're both shirtless and in swim trunks. The older man has his arm wrapped around the boy, awkwardly resting it on the young teen's midsection. The boy doesn't return the embrace. The grinning older man is a Catholic priest, but not just any priest. This is the future Cardinal Theodore McCarrick, a once powerful cleric who was found guilty in 2018 for the sexual abuse of seminarians and minors. The boy standing next to him is James Grine, one of his victims. It was a regular basis that McCarrick would fly out from uh, New York City on a Friday night. I guess he'd come on the, on the Eastern Airlines red eye. But he was always at my parents' house on a Saturday. And they would always have mass in the, in the in, in Hillsborough, California, in the house. This is Grind 50 years later, recalling when this picture was taken. I reached him via Zoom while he was on vacation abroad. So this is probably a typical uh, Saturday afternoon where he is uh, hanging out at the pool. He... Uh, was, uh, you know, proud that I was his boy and I was going to be his, uh, his altar boy that night at, 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 in Mass. My dad always said, you know, why don't you stand next to him? I want you to get a picture with him. And I, you know. Knowing Grind would be changing out of his swim trunks before Mass, McCarrick would catch him, alone in his room. McCarrick came in with his stuff and told me I needed to dress him. I was naked. And he made me dress him into his vestments. He needed me to be his boy. That's what happened on a regular basis when he came to California for the home mass. McCarrick had always been a part of Grind's life. In fact, McCarrick baptized him just weeks after being ordained in 1958. The sexual abuse began in 1969 when Grind was 11. It continued for 18 years. You're listening to Crisis, a podcast of The Catholic Project. We're telling the story of the sex abuse crisis of 2018. In 10 episodes, we'll explore what happened, why, and what's next. I'm your host, Carna Lozoya. I'm the Executive Director of Strategic Communications at the Catholic University of America. I began this job in the summer of 2018, weeks after the Archdiocese of New York revealed that a former altar boy accused Cardinal Theodore McCarrick of sexual assault. One of the first issues I worked on at Catholic University was McCarrick. He was the former Archbishop of D.C., our former chancellor, and an honorary degree recipient. So I was following the story closely. McCarrick denied everything, and there was a lot of confusion. 
On July 19th, the confusion disappeared when the New York Times published the details of Grind's 18-year abusive relationship with McCarrick, accompanied by a picture of the two in their swim trunks. We'll speak to Grind more in a future episode. But this picture was profoundly disturbing. I remember feeling physically nauseous and disgusted and terrified. If a cardinal of the Catholic Church is a serial sexual predator, how many others are out there? How much more rot is there in the church? How deep or how high does this go? That initial reaction is what led to this podcast. I know from years of working in crisis communications that the first step toward dealing with a crisis is understanding the problem, the root causes, in context. And that's what we hope to do over the next 10 episodes. In this episode, we'll examine the key events of the summer of 2018, a perfect storm of shocking revelations. The fall from grace of Theodore McCarrick, a damning grand jury investigation out of Pennsylvania, the letter of Archbishop Carlo Maria Vigano that accused Pope Francis of knowing about McCarrick, and the starts and stops of the church's response. We must move forward. We must put an end to this. That's Cardinal Theodore McCarrick discussing new policies on sex abuse at the Bishop's Conference in 2002. We need to accept these norms and to move on. And with the with this new canonical uh, procedures that we have to uh, to make sure that what we're doing is always just and honest, but we we have no choice. In the wake of the sex abuse crisis that year, McCarrick was a media favorite. The Washington Post called him the Vatican's man of the hour, praising his candor with reporters, his political savvy, his collegiality with other bishops, and his support for zero-tolerance policies for child predators. He was, ironically, one of the leading voices of reform at the time. He was popular for other reasons as well. I asked Tom Roberts, a veteran Catholic journalist and until recently the executive editor of the National Catholic Reporter, how he would describe McCarrick. For a lot of especially high-level Catholic uh, intellectuals and movers and shakers in Washington, he was um, a kind of moderate um, bridge between, you know, U.S. Catholicism and the Vatican. He was, um, you know, credible and, um, and seemingly sort of a congenial presence that wasn't on any end of the ideological spectrum. He added that McCarrick had a particular flair for fundraising. He was raising money for everybody. He was a very, very effective fundraiser. I mean, he was an important figure in the church who a lot of people knew because he lent their organizations credibility. Uh, He went to their gatherings. He was, you know, the church's guy on the international level. He was everywhere. Father Boniface Ramsey, now a parish priest in New York City, knew McCarrick in the 1980s when he was assigned to teach at the Immaculate Conception Seminary at Seton Hall University, McCarrick Seminary. To me personally, early on, McCarrick was a McCarrick was a gregarious, personable man. He liked to use nicknames. He used a nickname for me, and I think he used a nickname for a, a lot of people. What was your nickname? Bonnie. Bonnie. I'm Boniface. I kind of liked that. 
It was only later that I came to think that, you know, this was in a way uh, co-opting me. You know, only a superior could use a nickname with an inferior. The inferior couldn't do it back to the superior. Despite McCarrick's popularity, rumors had circulated for years about his sexual advances toward men in his seminary. I asked Father Ramsey what he knew. He emphasized that he never knew of any illegal acts on McCarrick's part. But what he did learn disturbed him deeply. For example, during trips to his beach house, McCarrick would routinely invite one seminarian too many. McCarrick would invite five seminarians to the beach house. They were five bedrooms, as I understand. And one of these bedrooms was McCarrick's. And because there were five seminarians and only four other beds or bedrooms, one of those seminarians then was supposed to sleep with McCarrick in his bed. And apparently the tr- he would say, now, I guess you'll have to bunk with me or something like that. This was universally or almost universally known in the seminary. This was an, un- an extremely unusual circumstance in which one's archbishop was asking a seminarian to sleep with them, but wasn't doing anything to him sexually. So what, what is the response to that? Especially if it's your right. archbishop, you know. Ramsey would later incur McCarrick's wrath when he moved to expel a particular seminarian in the spring of 1993. I don't want to get too detailed about it, uh, but I thought there were good, very good reasons for, for him to be expelled. And obviously the, the other members of the Formation Council who voted on him felt so as well. Then in September 1993, I come back after to begin a new semester at the seminary, and I discover that I'm no longer on the Formation Council. So I go to the rector, and, and he said, oh, you know, you're, uh, the archbishop has removed you from the Formation Council. And I was kind of surprised. And I, and I looked surprised, and he said, well, he knows that you disagree with him. And I, I guess I, and I said, what, you know? And he says, well, for example, in the case of, and then he named the seminarian. The rector didn't tell me that the seminarian used to have some kind of relationship with McCarrick. But clearly this seminarian was one of McCarrick's, you know, intimates in some way or another. Looking for advice on what to do about his archbishop's strange behavior, Ramsey turned to another archbishop, Thomas Kelly of Louisville, now deceased. And Kelly said... There's nothing you could do about it whatsoever. And then he said, very tellingly, he said, we all know about McCarrick. And I'll never forget his saying, we all know. I, I took it to mean, we bishops, we all know. I took it to mean, we all know his proclivities. That's how I understood it. After Ramsey left the seminary for a parish in New York City, he no longer had contact with McCarrick, but things still didn't sit right with him, especially when he learned in 2000 that McCarrick was named the Archbishop of Washington, a prestigious assignment in our nation's capital. And with the Archbishopric of Washington would come the Cardinal's hat. And I thought, don't they know? Don't they know about these things? In the history of the universe, nobody ever heard of an archbishop sleeping with his seminarians. There was no precedent for any of this. Suppose this information were to get out about McCarrick and the seminarians, you know, uh, and he has been 
installed as Archbishop of Washington and moreover given the red hat. What embarrassment for everybody. Plus, I just thought it was, that was secondary actually. I just thought it's, it's not right for this man to get this position. It seems that nobody is paying attention to, you know, what, what they knew about this guy. In November 2000, Ramsey wrote a letter to Rome expressing his concerns. He sent a similar letter in 2015 to Boston's Cardinal Sean O'Malley, the Vatican's point man for matters of sex abuse in the U.S. But the reports didn't seem to make a difference. Lay people also heard rumors about McCarrick. I had heard the rumors. George Weigel is a distinguished senior fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, and a prolific author. Among his books is the authoritative biography of Pope John Paul II, Witness to Hope. I had also never seen anyone willing to step forward and put their name and their reputation on a specific accusation. This happened to me at such and such a date in such and such a place, and this is what happened. So the notion that everybody knew is just not true. Uh, there was a lot of smoke, and maybe there ought to have been more examination of whether there was fire. But no one was coming forth. However, Weigel did add that there was enough information to warrant further investigation, especially after two former seminarians came forward with allegations. Both the Diocese of Metuchen and the Archdiocese of Newark paid out settlements quietly. The first one was paid in 2005, while McCarrick was still serving as the Cardinal Archbishop of Washington. I think the real point at which there is culpability that, that needs to be looked at seriously is in the 2007-2008 period, when these settlements were made in the Diocese of Metuchen and, and Newark. At that point, the bishops of the United States should have been privately, if necessary, informed that there was a huge problem here and that they were to have nothing to do with this guy. He was not to be invited to anything. He was not to be made welcome in dioceses. There was to be shut down. And, of course, there was an attempt at, at, at shutting him down, which he defied, and then was not reinforced from Rome, which is Rome's problem. We don't know the details of what was done or not done to discipline McCarrick in the wake of the settlements with seminarians. It wasn't until a former altar boy came forward to report two incidents of sexual assault by McCarrick when the boy was 15 and 16 years old that the church began to take public disciplinary action. The retired Archbishop of Washington, D.C., is removed from public ministry over allegations he sexually abused a teenager in New York more than 40 years ago. The church says the allegations against 87-year-old Cardinal Theodore McCarrick were found to be credible and that Pope Francis ordered his removal. He was Archbishop of Washington. The secret settlements I mentioned before also became public at this time. 
In 2018, Cardinal Daniel DiNardo, the Archbishop of Galveston, Houston, was president of the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops. He was essentially the face of the church in the U.S. that summer. The weight of the crisis took its toll. He suffered a stroke the following March. Fortunately, he fully recovered and finished his term as conference president in 2019. I asked him how he reacted to the news of McCarrick. I can't say that I knew Cardinal McCarrick extremely well, but I knew him, you know, and I got to know him once I was named a cardinal in 2007. And uh, he was retired then, but uh, he was still around. So to find out 10 years later what he had, had done as a priest and then as a bishop, I mean, it was horrifying to me. I mean, a tragedy, but horror. You know, it's one of those horrors that you say, well, this, you know, person can't do that. But uh, he, he did it. Cardinal DiNardo received thousands of letters from angry Catholics. People were angry because this is an insult to the faith placed in a priest, a bishop, whatever, a cardinal of the, of the Catholic Church by young, old, in between. And that he had indeed taken that faith and trust and just uh, slapped everybody's face. That's what it seemed like to me. Everybody was slapped and told to go away. And um, that really had uh, rage in people. That returns me to the question I had answered earlier uh, of the thousands of letters I received from Catholics. You know, how could this be? Well, it was a question I had, but it's a question really the people of God had, who would say, how could this person get through? And, uh, and and to such a level of leadership in the church. Cardinal DiNardo explained to me that a priest doesn't become a bishop and then an archbishop and a cardinal without a lot of other clerics vouching for him. Before anyone is ever named at a, a higher office to a bishop in the church, there's questionnaires that are sent around to all kinds of people. And they say something about that person. And if there's ever a moral issue involved, uh, that's supposed to be brought up then because it's all confidential. And so I'm perplexed because I'm saying, how could that guy get through that far? It's just, it's amazing. It's a perplexing, amazing, and perplexing, uh, horrifying, if I could put it that way. McCarrick became the first person in history to be removed from the College of Cardinals and laicized, stripped of all public connection to clerical life, not allowed to present himself as a priest, nor to celebrate the sacraments. This is the nuclear option in, in the Catholic Church. George Weigel. And that it happened rather rapidly in, in this case, given the way the Church tends to operate in a somewhat languid pace, I think was a recognition of just how serious this was and why it had to be addressed with the nuclear option as quickly as possible. McCarrick's fall from cardinal to layman needed to happen, but the laity wanted more from the church, more answers more explanations. Look, uh, when somebody of that rank in the church is uh, exposed as a serial abuser, that's obviously going to get a lot of people's attention. And it's going to be uh, very, very uh, wounding. It's going to be, it's going to hurt. Uh, and it should. 
So I think, particularly here at Washington, that was a real body blow. And uh, it's still being felt uh, in the Archdiocese of Washington and will be felt uh, for some uh, time. There were other aspects of that uh, situation, including the implausible denials uh, by other churchmen that they had really never heard any rumors about uh, McCarrick and his behavior, that, uh, that tended to make matters worse and that suggested that some people really hadn't learned too much uh, between 2002 and, and 2018. There was one question in particular that everyone was asking that summer. Who knew and when and why was he able to to be, you know, promoted up, including becoming a cardinal? Greg Erlinson is the editor of Catholic News Service. He's been a member of the Catholic Press for almost 40 years. The Catholic News Service is a division of the U.S. Bishops' Conference. So so all, all that it, it raised additional questions to people. And, and also therefore called into question the entire institution. In what type of institution does a man like McCarrick, a serial sexual predator of children and adults, rise to and thrive at its highest levels? What if there are more McCarricks? What if there's an entire network of McCarricks protecting each other within the church hierarchy, abusing children, and pushing other men, good men, out of the priesthood? Uh, but I think what made 2018 unique is that suddenly we are looking at the leaders, the shepherds, the people that we thought were sort of, in secular terms, running the show, and were shocked at what we were seeing there. Moments ago, an 884-page report issued unanimously by the 40th statewide investigative grand jury, the largest, most comprehensive report into child sexual abuse within the Catholic Church ever produced in the United States, was released. In August 2018, less than two months after the McCarrick revelations, Pennsylvania Attorney General Josh Shapiro held a press conference to announce the publication of the state's grand jury investigation into Catholic sexual abuse. The report brought together decades of abuse allegations across six dioceses. It was brutal. The grand jury uncovered credible evidence of sexual abuse against 301 predator priests. Over 1,000 child victims were identified by our investigation, though the grand jury notes that they believe that number was in the thousands. As the report reads, we should emphasize that while the list of priests is long, we don't think we got them all. It's important to understand what this report was not. The Pennsylvania report was not about new sexual abuse cases. Out of 300 accused abusers in the report, there were only two cases in which the offender was still alive and his offense recent enough to be criminally prosecuted. But these cases had something in common with McCarrick's case, 
again and again, the report laid bare the failure of bishops, including bishops still serving, to report crimes against children to the authorities, to take such transgressions seriously, and to remove predators from the priesthood. Catholics who read the report saw corruption at the top. The idea of clerical culture being at the heart of this, especially hierarchical culture, was beginning to take hold. Again, Tom Roberts, former executive editor of the National Catholic Reporter. And that puts it at a whole different uh, cast on things. When it's the individual priest, you know, people can understand, Catholics can understand sin and sexual sin. What has kept this really disturbing the Catholic community is the cover-up. But, but I think that's part of what really powerfully drove the reaction to the, the Pennsylvania Grand Jury Report. The report horrified anyone who read it. It contained stories of abusers coordinating with one another, sharing child pornography, or in one particularly horrifying case, giving child victims gold cross necklaces to wear, by which other abusers could recognize them. There were reports of priests sending the young girls they had raped to get abortions, of violent acts involving bondage and sadism, of bishops and diocesan officials sending priests for psychological treatment when they should have been reported immediately to civil authorities for criminal prosecution, not to mention expelled from the priesthood. Bishops allowed abuser priests to transfer to other dioceses or take on new roles. In some cases, that put them in contact with young people. For those familiar with the issue, like Roberts and other journalists, they'd seen this all before. Dallas, Milwaukee, uh, Long Island, I mean, it's just everywhere. And so when this grand jury report came out covering, what, six dioceses, I just thought, okay, more of the same. I mean, this is the same. This is more of the same rubble heap that's been stacking up for decades. But a lot of Catholics had no idea how many stories like these were out there. The report was eye-opening, partly because of all the details that were included. Those gold cross necklaces, for example. And as law enforcement and other states began digging, Faithful American Catholics, even those who might once have felt a duty to protect their church, welcomed this very public airing of the church's failures. It got people's attention. And link that with McCarrick, and all of a sudden, the summer becomes enormous. And the story, you know, comes out again at the top. One of the most dramatic turn of events that summer was the forceful call for the resignation of Cardinal Donald Worrell, who was then Archbishop of Washington, and McCarrick's successor. The Pennsylvania report revealed that Worrell had an imperfect record in handling sex abuse cases when he was the Bishop of Pittsburgh. His supporters pointed out that his record was better than most. But those calling for his resignation didn't have an appetite for better. Worrell's failure to be transparent about what he knew about McCarrick only made matters worse. Confidence in Worrell crumbled. In October, Pope Francis accepted his resignation. You might be wondering, what was the Vatican's response to the McCarrick revelations in the Pennsylvania report? But before we get there, we need to consider events that happened earlier in 2018 that appeared to shape the Pope's perspective on the sex abuse crisis. The year, though, what we tend to forget is the year began in January with the Pope's trip to Chile and Peru. 
Pope Francis publicly defended the Chilean bishops who were accused of covering up for notorious abuser Fernando Caradima. And Pope Francis felt that the bishops were being unfairly attacked and in fact said that the people who were accusing the bishop were liars. But the Chilean survivors of Caradima's abuse managed to change the Pope's mind and got him to take their claims seriously, an event that led to a complete investigation and consequences for those involved in the cover-up. The entire saga is significant as it shows the Pope's evolving understanding of sexual abuse in the Church. And I think this was actually a, a virtue of Pope Francis, um, though you know some people might criticize him, but I think he realized that he may have made a mistake. And he sent two investigators to the United States and then on to Chile, uh, one of whom was um, Archbishop Shakluna, who was, had run point for many years on sexual abuse for the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith. And then, uh, subsequent to that, Pope Francis admitted he was wrong, called for the resignation or, or received the resignation of, of the country's entire episcopacy, 34 bishops. And, and so all that was, in a way, we forget about it, but it was kind of setting a stage. It was getting a lot of press, um, what, had, what had happened there. Pope Francis showed a willingness to learn and be changed by the facts. On August 20th, just days after the release of the grand jury report, Pope Francis responded to the U.S. scandals with a letter addressed to the people of God, in which he at least acknowledged a massive problem. And it's a, he's trying to show, one, that he's, he's heard the pain, that, he, that he, he feels the pain for the victims, that he understands that this is a great spiritual crisis. He calls for, you know, fasting and, and prayer uh, on, the, on the part of everybody, the people of God. Uh, and, and then uh, he, he also, I believe there also, he, he has a, a refrain that he continues, which is that this isn't something that just is going to take a programmatic solution, that this is something that's d much deeper and more significant. And he also lays out his kind of argument that this is a problem of clericalism as well. And I have to say that, that the letter w was probably not appreciated all that much. I mean, the, 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 the comment I remember hearing from people was, uh, I'm not doing any prayer and fasting. I wasn't the one responsible for this. And I think that was the kind of the sign of the, of the anger. You know, it's in, in rereading re it, it's not, it's, it, it has powerful moments. And it reminds me of the letter that Pope Benedict wrote to the Irish people in 2010, when all the scandals blew up in Ireland. But people weren't in the mood for that. And, and even though the, I think the Pope was, I think the wisdom of the Pope's approach in retrospect has been borne out that it wasn't simply a programmatic solution. That's what people wanted. People, what people really wanted, they wanted heads on a pike. They wanted people defenestrated. They wanted action taken. Just two days after Francis released his letter to the people of God, Archbishop Carlo Maria Vigano published a letter of his own. Vigano was the former nuncio, the Vatican's ambassador to the United States. His was the first account of who knew what and when about McCarrick from someone who had been in a position to know. Vigano's primary claim was that Pope Francis knew about McCarrick. 
And Vigano knew the Pope knew because he was the one who told him. Vigano claimed that he specifically told Francis in 2013 that McCarrick had, quote, corrupted generations of seminarians and priests. Then Vigano did something completely unheard of. He demanded the Pope's resignation. I think that what that letter did was it took a uh, raging fire and poured gasoline on it. It it just, it was an accelerant. Uh, And truthfully, I I think it did enormous damage. But the idea was that um, the Pope had been warned. He called for the resignation of the Pope. Vigano accused Pope Francis of appointing bishops recommended by McCarrick and of removing restrictions on McCarrick that Benedict XVI had imposed. I think what I find so sad about the Vigano letter and everything that that followed is this, it fueled this, this, what was already sort of growing was this anti-institutionalism in the church. And I think that's sort of like the larger context also of how 2018 is different from 2002. It's because we've, we've been dealing with the politics of destruction and the politics of distrust and the politics that challenges the institutions. We have, we have much more of a sentiment in the country of let's burn this thing down. And so all that came together in 2018. And Vigano, uh, his letter, I think, really, unfortunately, I, I think it played a really bad role. But he did raise specific issues, and, and the issues had to be investigated. Whatever the merits of these criticisms, it became clear that the church had an immediate problem. As president of the U.S. Bishops' Conference, Cardinal DiNardo was in a position to lead the bishops toward adopting reforms that could address the systemic problems that enabled McCarrick's abuse. The conference spent months preparing for the bishops' annual November meeting. We had a number of committees, as you can imagine, working on this issue because it involves canon law, it involves clergy, it involved all of our committees. And um, they worked very hard that summer. You know, summertime, things slowed down a little. They didn't slow down. It was intense time. And we labored over those proposals and whatnot and got them ready so at least we could present it as an agenda to the bishops at the November meeting. They believed that there was going to be a whole series of legislative actions that were going to, you know, uh, resolve the whole issue of the responsibility of the bishops and the culpability of the bishops and how he dealt with it. And instead, the meeting opens with Cardinal DiNarno reading or, or announcing that Cardinal Ouellette, who was the um, prefect of the Congregation for Bishops, had asked them to not have a vote on any of them. In other words, the Vatican asked them to stand down. But I think what had happened is we had moved we thought with the uh, understanding of Rome, but I think we might have been moving too fast as they talk about the famous meeting in November where we had to pull aside our uh, proposals. And you could feel the room deflate. I mean, it was it was incredible moment to be there. And, and Cardinal Leonardo was obviously very upset. Um, everybody was upset. Either they were upset at Rome for doing that, or they were upset at the U.S. bishops for putting Rome in a bad position. I mean, it was it was a terrible thing. It was confusing for a few reasons, but mainly because leadership in Rome had long treated the sex abuse issue as uniquely American. 
So if the U.S. bishops were ready for reforms, why would the Vatican ask them to wait? And Pope Francis is saying to the U.S. bishops, before you, uh, before you embark on concrete steps, before you embark on changes, I need to make sure that you all are coming together and you all understand the gravity of this crisis along with the global church. Kim Daniels is the Associate Director of the Initiative on Catholic Social Thought and Public Life at Georgetown University and an advisor to the Vatican on communication issues. She served as the spokesperson for the U.S. Bishops Conference when Cardinal Timothy Dolan of New York was president. She's generally a good person to go to when you need a broader perspective. Here in the United States, the crisis has been very present for us for a long time now. Around the globe, uh, that's not the case in many different countries. Also around the globe, they don't have, in many different countries, they don't have the kind of resources or the kind of setup, basically, to address this crisis in the way that we're used to here in the United States. And they also have cultural issues that often prevent them from addressing it head on. Pope Francis began to move toward a global solution to sex abuse in the church. He called the world's bishops to a summit in February 2019. Daniels advised the organizing committee for that meeting. And so Pope Francis really wanted to bring everybody together, leaders of these bishops' conferences from around the world, to say, you need to own this and take responsibility for it. It's not a Western problem, and it's not a problem of of sort of elite culture. It's a problem all of us face around the globe. Um, And we need to come together to find ways to Uh, hold bishops accountable, hold others accountable. We need to find ways to increase transparency in the church. Pope Francis's failure to take the Chilean victims seriously seemed to have left a real impression on him. It was almost as if he didn't want the bishops to make the same mistake he did. Remember that Pope Francis has not been wonderful on this issue, and certainly up to that point had not been. And he had um, a real moment of conversion himself where um, involving Chile and the situation of victims in Chile. It tells him that he needs this conversion of heart and other bishops need the conversion of heart um, to understand the gravity of the crisis. Daniels remembers the last working day of the summit when the bishops gathered to hear a musical performance from a survivor of sexual abuse. So we're in this ornate, you can picture it, this ornate hall in the Vatican, right, with these beautiful paintings along the walls, and everybody is gathered there, and it's mostly bishops. And as I said, I'm not a musical person, and I didn't, I knew that the testimony of this day was going to be uh, victim survivors' uh, music, and I didn't know what to expect from that, and I really didn't know how it would affect everybody, um, whether it would do justice to what that person wanted to express. And it, not only did it do justice, but it was so emotional and powerful that I was brought to tears in a way that I completely didn't expect. Then I looked around me and people were just open, jaws dropped, you know, just so engaged with it and so moved by it. And I think it's because it was so much a part of our Catholic tradition, right, is focused on how art and literature and music can express suffering, can express beauty, can express longing and joy. And this person managed to express, I think, the suffering as well as as the hope looking forward in this one beautiful presentation. Then there was an address by a religious sister, the Nigerian-born Superior General of the Society of the Holy Child Jesus. 
Another very powerful moment was Sister Veronica Openibo, who talked with the assembled bishops. And it was, she talked about accountability. And she uh, really spoke to them powerfully and in a new voice, one that they clearly were not used to hearing. And she challenged them and challenged them very directly. They left that room. You could hear them in the hallway. They had not been challenged in that way before. And it was so important and powerful. And she is such a holy person that her testimony was a real moment, a real turning point, I think, in many ways. We left there. It was wonderful that it happened on a Saturday, sort of as we were pulling everything together, because I think we did leave with this sense that things were really moving forward and a sense of hope. Despite the powerful testimonies and moments of conversion, many felt the summit failed to accomplish any real change. Yet the summit did lay the foundation for Francis's sweeping reforms issued later that year, detailed in a document titled Vos Estes Lux Mundi, You Are the Light of the World. We'll talk about Vos Estes and what it means for the Church throughout this podcast. 2018 was a traumatic year in the life of the Church. It brought down one of America's most prominent and influential bishops, It revealed hundreds of old abuse cases in the Pennsylvania Grand Jury Report, and it led to questions about the hierarchy of the Catholic Church that had never been asked before. The events of that year did force progress and reform ever so slowly. But as Pope Francis has argued, this was never just a problem about processes and rules that can be fixed with legislation. It goes much deeper. It touches on the failure of bishops to act like shepherds, to respond to crimes against children, like fathers. Pope Francis recognized this fundamental failure in his letter to the people of God. He wrote, With shame and repentance, we acknowledge as an ecclesial community that we were not where we should have been, that we did not act in a timely manner. Realizing the magnitude and the gravity of the damage done to so many lives. We showed no care for the little ones. We abandoned them. Join us in episode two of this podcast as we explore how the crisis of 2018 was decades in the making. We'll talk with Catholic journalist Jason Berry, who wrote extensively about cases of sexual abuse beginning in the 1980s, and Ray Mouton, the lawyer who defended the first priest pedophile ever to be indicted in the United States. From the Catholic Project at the Catholic University of America, you're listening to Crisis. Our podcast team includes myself, Karna Lozoya, executive producer Stephen White, producer Jeff Gosser, communications manager Sarah Perla, and writer David Ferdoso. Sound designed by Paul Vikas. Music courtesy of Jay Tibbetts and APM Music. Our theme song was composed by Gautam Shrikashan. Marketing and distribution provided by Jeff Umbro of The Podglomerate. Cover art by Tom Grillo. Archival audio provided by C-SPAN. And a very special thank you to all of our guests. For an episode guide or for more information about The Catholic Project, go to thecatholicproject.org. If you've been sexually assaulted, you can receive confidential support 24-7 through the National Sexual Assault Hotline at 1-800-656-HOPE. That's 1-800-656-4673. 
If the abuse is related to the Catholic Church, you can also contact your diocese victim assistance coordinator. Contact information for each diocese is available at usccb.org forward slash VAC.